Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the connection and change that comes from really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the good stuff happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum, infused with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bone, and it is my greatest honor to be chief story steward around here. I combine my decade of experience working in the mental health field with my five plus years of sobriety to bring you candid conversations with spectacular guests, pulling back the curtain on what it really looks like to ditch the booze. We like to think that we're changing the way the world sees drinking one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Thank y'all so much for the overwhelming response to our first episode of the new season. It really makes my day when you listen to an episode and then you tell me how much it meant to you to hear. Like when y'all send me DMs, messages, emails, I read every single one of them and it really affirms what we do here in this space. So thank you. Today, I have a fantastic conversation on deck for you. I got to sit down with Khadija Olawatoyan, founder of Sober Black Girls Club, to hear her sober story and to learn more about SBGC and the importance of different voices in this sober space. Y'all know my shtick. I believe that it is so powerful when we see ourselves reflected in different versions of sobriety, of recovery, of healing, of wellness, whatever you want to say. It's also so much harder when we do not see ourselves reflected in these spaces. So I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Khadija about the importance of this for Black women specifically. After you give today's episode a listen, tag us and Khadija and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories crew, I'm so excited to have the founder of the Sober Black Girls Club, Katie Olawatoyan, with us today. Katie, thank you so much for joining us on Sober Stories. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I have just been a long admirer of your work in this space. I really respect the platform that you have created and the way you are elevating women of color, people of color. We can talk about that in a minute. I want to ask about the expansion of that word. But I really really value the work you do in this space. And I really am excited to hear more about your story and what brought you here. So let's just dive right in. Can you tell us more about your sober story, how you became a person who runs Sober Black Girls Club? Yeah, sure. So um, I believe it was the fall of 2017. I had just graduated from law school, you know, first put a lease down on my first apartment that um, I was living in without student aid, without the help of my parents, you know, just bought my dream car, should I say finance my dream car, had a job right out of law school. um, But still, I realized that I was really miserable. I was really sad and miserable. And I had no idea why. At that time, I wasn't really big on it. Even though I, I will say that up until that point, I've always had a really close connection with like the guidance counselors in my life. I still don't believe I really understood my experiences up until then. And I just chucked it up to being like life woes. And I drank to handle uh, my feelings, the situation. I didn't really seek help. I just drank. And as I was drinking, I went through friendships, relationships, jobs, was gaining weight and just flat out miserable. And it wasn't until the next year in 2018 that I sought help. I went to a doctor. I went to go see a therapist and I was telling her that I I need help. Like things are just not working in my life. And I didn't really understand why. After a couple of sessions, you know, the therapist said, I think you need to stop drinking. And I was looking at her like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you what are you talking about? And she suggested that I might have an addiction. And up until that point, addiction was totally, completely foreign 
in my like in my mind in my head and actually I remember a time in law school I remember like in my second year I believe there was a, a case I don't remember exactly what it was and I remember I had said something and addiction had something to do with that I can't even remember and I remember saying something to the effect of like well I can't remember exactly where how addiction played out in the case but I remember talking about the defendant saying well you know he knew what he was doing and a, a lot of my classmates corrected me and was like well no addiction is seen as a disease and this and that and I was looking at them like you guys are crazy you guys are nuts like what are you talking about? Like, that was like my only interaction or actual conversation with like the word addiction. And clearly I was really misinformed then. I didn't even know, I didn't even know what I was talking about. When she said that I left her office and I went about my business, went out, still continued to drink until a year later, again, still going through friendships and relationships and jobs and apartments. And I just had to concede that I needed help, that like my life wasn't the way I planned and I just didn't understand how I, I got here. So long story short, Sure. In the beginning of my um, recovery process, I did what everyone does. I went to 12 steps. And mm-hmm. some of the challenges that I faced while um, attending the 12 step program in the borough that I lived in was one, there not being meetings in the part of the borough, the part, the side of the borough that I lived in. So I would have to take two buses to get to a meeting. Ah. Being inaccessible, me literally being like the only black person in the meetings. And then this notion that we couldn't speak about outside issues, which at that mm. time, this was in 2018, outside issues were basically you couldn't talk about issues that surrounded being black or like issues that were in regards to race and sex. And I just want to throw something out before like we get any more into this conversation. We cannot, like we cannot deny that 12 steps has helped people, right? We cannot deny that. First of all, there's not one recovery program or way of recovery that has that can help and has helped everyone who has tried it. Like, you know, there's not a hundred percent error proof recovery program. At the same time, we can acknowledge that 12 step programs have helped people. We can acknowledge that 12 step um, programs have helped people of color and black people. At the same time, we can also acknowledge that it ignores a core part of yes. the experience that many people of color who want to acknowledge their experiences face in this country. Mm. And I choose to acknowledge my experiences because I know the only way I can get through something is to overcome something, excuse me, is to to go through it and to acknowledge everything. So I just want to put put that out there. So that was my issues. Those were my issues with um, the 12-step program. And I continue to go, and I continue to go now, to be honest. I never really um, finished the program or really took any great interest in the program. But on days that I need fellowship, that we might not be having an SBGC meeting, I will go. The days where I might have a mentee or someone says, Katie, can you come with me to this meeting? I will go because I, I know how important it is to utilize everything and anything in your toolbox to bring you to another sober day. So anyways, going back to 2018, I was like, yeah, this is not going to work. And I decided to journal my experience in sobriety. I needed some type of accountability. You know, online, you know, the sober community wasn't what it is today, but there was something there, even though it didn't look like what it looks like today, but there, clearly there was something there. Right. And I started to document my experiences um, in a blog. And it wasn't until... 2020, that other sober folks, sober folks of color, sober black girls and women were Googling because when they were experiencing the pandemic, um, they were 
basically something that I was experiencing. And I'll tell you what I was experiencing through my self-recovery, what I realized I was going through that led to my depression. So up until like all of my life, I was busy doing things and producing and proving my worth, regardless if it's through Sunday school, Arabic school, dance class, soccer, the the basketball team, science, the science weekend um, program that I was a part of, school, actual academics, you know, with just competing against your siblings, you're competing against students. And all my life, all I've ever known was to do and do and win and to to shine. And I, I will, you know, I will put some of the blame on like my 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 birth chart i'm very leo heavy so i'm very i'm somewhat competitive and i just love (laughs) so you know and there's nothing i always tell people there's literally nothing wrong with being competitive the downfall is that when you don't have values like love and community and self-worth and self-respect that's based on you and not accolades that's the downfall and that's what I was missing that's what I was missing in life and for me um during my during that time that I graduated law school and was working I felt my self-esteem diminished because for the first time I was just doing one thing was going to work and I felt very useless and I felt very low you would think like Katie, but you was a lawyer. But it was like, yeah, I was just a lawyer living an average mm. life. And I wasn't used to living in my head an average life. I was used to doing a million things mm. all at one time. And an, and, a norm, and a person with good coping skills, I won't say a normal person, because who's really normal nowadays. I will say a person with good coping skills would have probably joined a club or probably utilized and understood the importance of rest. I didn't know any of that. You know, you can be book smart all you want, but are you emotionally intelligent? And I can say, I don't think I I wasn't emotionally intelligent or flexible. So it led me to drink. And in 2020, during the pandemic, a lot of Black women were experiencing the same thing and reaching out to me. Now, I want to answer this one question before I give the floor over to you, Beth. I did an interview. I think it was with Katie Couric, I believe it was. It was. No big deal. (laughs) Uh, She was the first person to ask me this. And I was like, I'm happy you asked me this. And she said, how does that, like, how is that different from what girls in general go through, what white girls go through, what, what Spanish girls go through of constantly producing and doing and doing and working and my response is that in our households, right, I think that one, we can we can understand that part of American culture is to produce, is to work, is to base our our worth, unfortunately, on our achievements, right? And in a lot of our households, while maybe white girls are being compared to each other and they and maybe, you know, your model is your older sister or your great grandma who's a lawyer or your, I don't know, your aunt who was a doctor. We're being compared in our household unconsciously and consciously mm. to white folks, you know? You gotta be a certain size. You have to wear your hair a certain way. You have to speak a certain way. So it's not just that I have to produce, you know? It's not just that I have to produce, that I have to do. It's that I have to do it in a way that's not natural for me, but it's that's natural and that that conforms to the white gaze. And that's what creates a lot of self-hatred, a lot of self-mistrust, a lot of self-abuse. And we don't even know. I didn't, if you know, if we had this conversation years ago, I wouldn't even be able to say this. It it wasn't until my self-recovery of learning, how did I get here that I was able to piece these things together? And a lot, and I'll end this by saying that 
you know, I learned that a lot, you know, it's it really even in our households, our parents don't know that they're practicing this when, you know, they, they don't know that like when, when, Hey, you shouldn't wear your hair like that because when you go to work, when you go to work, if you go to that interview, they're not going to um, hire you. And that may be true, but it adds another layer of, of damage that I'm not good enough for the outside world. But also, even though my family might be trying to protect me, it doesn't seem like I'm good enough at home either. Mm. Um, and those are the nuances that need and should be addressed um, when we're talking about our traumas that lead to the need and the want to escape. Okay. There is so much meat in this that I'm really excited to dig into. And I'm so glad that you just kicked us right off with, because I think that that is the whole reason that I was so excited to have this conversation and to bring this, bring more visibility to what you're doing. Because when you mentioned the outside issues of AA, I've had a conversation on the podcast with uh, Lazarus Letcher, who is a black trans man. And he shared a similar experience in AA of not being able to talk about his blackness and not being able to talk about his transness. And it it is when we think about what you were saying with the way you have to perform and the way you have to show up and compared to to white folks or to other folks i think there's so much centering of whiteness in the sober space and that is inherent built into aa with this idea that even talking about your identity who you are is an outside issue it just goes ahead and says like the norm is whiteness and everything else is different when we think about how i always come from a space of thinking about recovery or healing or like Literal recovery in the alcohol sense from how difficult it is to do if we don't see ourselves in the people around us or we don't see ourselves in figures that are in leadership or in, uh, you know, even popular culture. And I think one of the things that is so important and special about what y'all do is that you are creating a space where it is safe for people to be black and to be a woman and to be a person of color. And that is being centered because it is no longer, it like removes this layer of just like one fewer barriers. So when you think about what y'all are doing, Doing at Sober Black Girls Club. And one of the things I underlined was this idea of producing and proving your worth. How does this idea or does it get woven into the work that you do at Sober Black Girls Club? How do you like let people rest? Because that's one of the things I heard in your story is an inability to rest. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge one. I mean, when you've been living your life in a certain manner for like 30 years I think like majority of our people always ask with the age range I'm like I don't know uh, a lot of our um, like the most active members you have about 2,000 members and I'm I'm only thinking Amazing. about the active ones I can only talk about the active members let's say maybe 27 to I'm gonna say maybe 60 like active that I'm thinking that I can like actually put a face to their names we have all conceded that like when we've been living our lives for so so long in a certain manner, we're not going to just miraculously do a 180 in a year or two. Mm. So even today, it's hard for me to rest. It's hard for me mm. to take a breather. And I have to check myself when I'm doing certain things. Like, am I just collecting uh, stones right now? Like, what, what is that movie? Mm. Are they collecting stones? Um, I can't remember that. Isn't it that, that Marvel movie where he's like collecting stones or whatever? Anyways. Oh, um, oh yeah. The Avengers. Yeah. yeah. Thanos. <laughs> I always have to ask myself, am I collecting stones right now? Or is this something that I actually really want 
to do? Or am I just trying to avoid stillness and resting? So a lot of us still today struggle with rest. You know, we have an upcoming retreat happening in September and we are having a a yoga teacher who Mm -hmm. practices and we study your nervous system, who practices in um, meditation and stillness. So resting is something that we constantly have to do every day and consciously do it, you know, in the morning. Mm -hmm. Every morning, you know, I've been sober since 2020. Every morning, even now, I have to consciously make a decision not to put on my iPad. Some mornings Mm. are easier than others, but some mornings I need to hear something. I want to hear something. I do not want to hear nothing playing out uh, out in the background because it's scary. Mm. So when it comes to rest, it's really like an active active decision. For me, what that looks like is going to bed at eight. It doesn't mean actually sleeping, but it's it's a Mm. step actually going to bed. It's going to my cycling class at six because if I go at six, that means I'm automatically going home and I'm leave, I'm not coming back to the office. It is, you know, like today, my first meeting started at 12, deciding to sleep in and waking up around mm-hmm. 10, uh, yeah, 10, around 10 o'clock. It's making those decisions. And even though, and it's fighting myself because it's like, well, you know what? I could be up at like six and then do this and then doing that and doing that. But it's also like, uh, but I can also, you know, I can really use these couple of hours of sleep. I can really use these couple mm. of hours in bed because I don't live the, the average nine to five life, you know? So mm. I can actually, you know, make this decision. So it's constantly and consciously making the right decisions for myself that don't only involve producing something tangible that I actually want to see come to fruition, but also producing a sense of like quietness for myself, a Mm. sense of of resting, a sense of like me waking Mm. up and not feeling like, oh, you know, I could still use a couple more hours in bed. It's just make constantly daily, constantly making daily decisions about feeling refreshed, and, and rest, yeah, and restful. Yeah. Mm, I think we're all really bad at that. <laughs> I, I, this idea of collecting stones, I, I love that reference because I, I mean, it, it, it's probably not just a singularly American thing, but it feels pretty American to just mm-hmm. be in like constant hustle culture and constant grind. And, you know, I have a theory about eldest daughters about how <laughs> we're, we're like in this perfection mode and, and raised to be the perfect daughter. And then all of us have drinking problems on the other end because it is an intolerance to being like our bodies are like revolting. Our bodies are saying this is too much. This is intolerable. What you said about like, if I was a person who had good co- coping skills, maybe I could have done this differently. And we're all just taught to produce and create and gather and produce again, instead of being taught to rest. So I'm curious when you built Sober Black Girls Club, what was your intent then? And like, what was your your focus, mission, whatever you want to say? Let's just start with that. I just want to know, like when you said, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make this blog, when it started to expand, what did you envision it becoming? Honestly, so I'm a very impulsive person. I'll be very honest, like <laughs> as I'm like working on a new venture and learning and doing it sober Ooh. and beginning of Sober Black Girls Club, you know, I was still drinking. I saw as we just see in 2018, mm. thinking that like getting sober was going going to be something is like getting a degree oh you just you go to school you study like you know school 
getting education has always been easy for me. So I'm thinking that this is going to be something that's so simple. And not simple, <laughs> but you know, like you study, practice, you do well, you succeed. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that like addiction and sobriety and recovery, it's a whole different like ball game. And even me mm-hmm. still trying to figure out like just, it's just a whole different ball game. So I, mm-hmm. I had no idea what it would entail. And I just do things very impulsively. And I was like, let me just document this. I don't think things through, honestly. Um, a lot of times I just don't. That Leo. I feel something and I go about it. And what I was saying before, like even yeah. me now working on a new venture and it's like, okay, um, taking like, you know, business assessments and it's like, yeah, you're the seer. You, I can vision things and I'll just do things. And if I make a mistake, mm. I'll just correct it and just go about it again. But I'm not really the, the person who like cans out every single like nook yeah. and cranny and what can go wrong. I don't do that. I really didn't have a vision. I just wanted to write, you know, I've always been a creative person. I've always been a writer. I think in my journey of wanting to be successful in a way that appeared successful in, the, in regards to like what my parents consider successful and teachers, I kind of shunned my creative side mm. away for a bit, which is why like me becoming like a lawyer was just like one of the, you know, lawyers can be creative. Don't get me wrong. You know, writing and art, making art, <laughs> you have to be creative. Yeah. But I think, like, even we graduated, I had another thing to do about it. I was just so unfulfilled in my life. I mean, that was another part of, like, this is this can't be life. This is so boring. Mm. Yeah, writing a blog, I didn't really have a vision. I just wanted to write. I just had, like, the itch to write and just put myself out there. Mm-hmm. I talk about my experiences because I've, I've always just felt like my experiences deserve to be um, told. Even when I was a kid, yes. when I told you, um, I've always been close to my um, guidance counselors in school. Anytime something would happen to me, I would go to them and tell them. I will say that looking back at like my child, my childhood self, my ch- inner child, not necessarily inner child, my child self, my childhood self, yes. you know, she she just always knew when something was wrong and she wasn't mm. a wasn't afraid to, to say when things were wrong and to even though you know she might not have always said it in the most appropriate way but she's always been <laughs> she always like knew what things were wrong and she's never been scared to like to talk about um, her experiences and I think that's has followed me throughout mm. all my life. yeah no that's that Leo in your chart right this idea yeah. of <laughs> doing yeah. things and and making something without pre-planning. And I think that that's a really huge gift, especially as somebody who is in more of a a creative like business space. I know y'all are a nonprofit, but to be able to just act and to do and to to think about the fact that you started this blog when you were still drinking and it now is this, this huge thing that has given its own, has, has received its own life that helps so many people, I think is really cool. And I think I'm really curious about, um, personally really interested in like the sober creatives space and like people who consider themselves to be creatives or maybe don't consider themselves to be creative. And then they've removed alcohol and they've realized, oh, wait, I actually have all these ideas. I have all this free time. And one of the things that I wrote down was like, before you quit drinking this idea of like being unfulfilled in life and like not utilizing your creativity and not having an outlet for that or not being prized or prioritized in your life. What does creativity look like for you now? Yeah, that's that's really great. Okay, so I tend to do this thing where like I jump from like topic to topic and I, I need to go for no, it. Yep. I tend to do it a lot. So I want to go back <laughs> real quick and just to say yep. that like when I saw, yeah, I was, because I thought like getting sober was going to be so easy. I don't think I finished that thought and it wasn't. Yeah. So even though I had the intention of like not drinking while I was working on the blog, 
I've had some, I had laughs, you know, if you see the, the, the laughs between my blog posts, clearly I was drinking, I was doing something during that time, Mm. you know, getting sober wasn't that easy in terms of creativity. So what I've learned, I I do feel like all of us are creative. I think that now in the social media area, we all feel like we have the profit over, off of our creativity, excuse me, but one, we don't. So taking the profit aspect away, removing social media Mm -hmm. away and feeling the need to record it. I feel like we're all creative. Sometimes that looks like singing, dancing, mm. the way we walk, you know, the way we, we talk and, and write poems, right, in our journal. Even if you can't sing, even I can't dance. Well, I'm not going to say I can't dance. I'm not the worst dancer, but I'm not the best dancer either, but that's like <laughs> but I'm really not. But that's like my favorite form of, of creativity is yeah. dancing. It's moving totally. my body. It's like listening to music. I wish I could sing. I can't. I don't know why God did not bless me with vocals. Like if I had vocals. <laughs> How dare. Right? If I had vocals, it would be amazing. But anyways. So creativity just really for me looks like dancing and singing. I will acknowledge that I have been like blessed with like creativity when it comes to like marketing and creating like, mm-hmm. I don't know what you want to call that. And and I never really realized that I'm just like, these things come natural. But I can say, okay, yeah. you know, this it, it can be a gift to be able to communicate in a way that people can receive it and feel like they're not alone. Mm-hmm. And I will acknowledge mm-hmm. that, even though I never used to really see that as a gift, writing and communicating to people in a way where they don't feel alone in regards to their trauma, that's creativity. I will say that that's not like creativity that's like I do to decompress and have fun yeah. necessarily, right. but it's, it's a tool that I use to connect with other people. And one of the one of like the most, one of the crucial, I guess, things I've learned in my recovery from Bell Hugs, who was like amazing. She just, I've learned so yes. much from her author who recently passed away, rest in peace, was that she said that in our lives, like our lives are not always at all times going to look like what we would envision it to be. So in a perfect mm. world, I would love to become a singer. Like why not? Like I would love to become a singer. I would love to be an actress. Why not, right? However, mm. life is not always going to, like right now, that's not what my life looks like. However, it mm. is my choice and I do have pockets throughout my day to day to implement joy and, and, and creativity. Mm. You know, even if I'm not getting paid for it, even if millions of people mm-hmm. are not going to see me do it. So what does that look like? Joining a dance class, joining an acting mm-hmm. class, singing in the morning, going to karaoke, maybe doing a talent show. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Looking for different outlets where we can express our creativity because truthfully, we all are creative and we all are just looking mm-hmm. for ways to let loose. And creativity looks different. Some people love yoga, which is a form of creativity and art. Mm-hmm. They love the slow movement, right? I That's not my cup of tea, but for other people, mm-hmm. it, it does something for them. Yeah. And I like what you, you're calling out about removing. <laughs> you're so right that we've turned everything into a side hustle. of like, oh, I can do a thing. Maybe I should sell it. And again, that is one of the things that we have just like really turned sideways here in our culture. And I completely agree that I think everybody's a creative. I think many of us, we are, we are, our creativity is not fostered. Our creativity is not prioritized. We are told that maybe our creativity is the wrong kind of creativity. Maybe we're not an artist, but like you said, like we can dance or we enjoy dancing. And when I, 
when I talk about creativity with folks, I, I'm like, I literally want you to like create something, like create movement, create sound, create a cardboard castle. I don't know. I don't care what it is. Like actually when we get to like the root word of creativity, it's like creation, creating something. And this idea of pairing it with like play and joy and all of these things and, and going back to this idea of having felt unfulfilled before you quit drinking. I think one of the things that's really scary for people is they remove the alcohol and then they realize they don't have anything else there. So how did you like figure out what you actually even enjoy? How did you figure out what feels good to you that you love singing, that you love having these creative outlets? Honestly, I feel like for me, the things that I'm scared to do or the things Mm. that I'm nervous to do, that's an indication that I want to do it. But for some reason... Mm. Or there's some experience that made me feel that I wasn't connected to it or I didn't have a right to do Mm. it. So anytime, like when it comes to dancing, I love dancing, right? So in 20, I remember in 2021, I went to um, a gathering with my cousin in New York City and it was a dance class and I was like shying away and and stiff. And what is the issue? Because I'm not as like good as everyone else. This is like a class for anyone. This is a community class. But again, me feeling like I have to be perfect at everything I do. Everything has to look good. It truly does not have to look good all the time. Everything I do does not have to look amazing on the first try all of the time. So for me, an indication that I am going to have a deep connection to something or I like something is if I am nervous about it in the beginning or have a thought, I'm hesitant to do it. So even if it's like a book that I'm like staying away from, I know that there's something in that book that I need that I'm going to feel connected to. If it's a class, if it's a person where I'm just like, please stay away from me. It's because I know that like that person or that thing is going to be some some source of like happiness and joy for me but for some reason at mm-hmm. this moment I'm scared and for why I don't for what why I don't really know I think it could be a multitude of reasons um but usually again for me it's just it's it's fair it's like your gut check when you like feel that feeling you're like okay this is the direction I need to go okay where do you have siblings where are you on the sibling line <sighs> they all get runners um I have Four siblings. I'm the second oldest. I'm the oldest girl. I have an Darn. older sibling. Oh, okay, eldest daughter. Okay, so th- you're proving my theory. <laughs> this idea of like perfection and having to get it right and looking good on the outside. And I know for me, nobody ever knew that I had a drinking problem because it looked fine on the outside. It looked good. I was a young mom. I had it all together. Nobody except for if you lived in my household and saw what I did on my couch every night would have had any idea that. I was drinking a bottle of wine every night because it looked good. It looked fine. And there was so much unlearning for me on the other side of that to say like, first off, it's okay for me to be seen in the imperfection. And it's okay for me to be vulnerable and say like, actually I'm struggling or maybe I'm not very good at this one thing or I'm taking a beginner's pottery class right now. And let me tell you, it is a thousand times harder than any one very false advertising, very difficult medium to do. And I've found that in sobriety, I'm trying to step 
step more into spaces of being a beginner and being new at something and being bad at something because every time I do it, it grows me like a little bit more outside my comfort zone. Because when I was perfect, quote unquote, when I was doing everything right, I was like deeply sick. I was really, really unwell. Having to unlearn that has been been a long process for me. Yes. And pottery is definitely another form of, of art and creativity. So shout out to that. I was like, I know there's other forms of, of art and creativity. Yeah, <laughs> pottery. Yes. If you've been hanging out with Super Stories for a while, you know all about Quitlet, the genre of literature covering the diverse experience of quitting drinking. In fact, we've had some amazing authors on the podcast like Ruby Warrington of Sober Curious and Amanda E. White of Not Drinking Tonight. Since I know you already enjoy plugging into your sober space via your headphones, we've got the perfect partner for you. It's time to check out Audible. Audible is the leading creator and provider of premium audio storytelling, enriching the lives of millions of listeners every day. Books on Tape have gotten a serious upgrade. With over 200,000 podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals available, you can tune into your latest Quitlet read on your next hot girl walk or school pickup line. Get a free 30-day trial, including one credit or two for Prime members, good for any premium selection by visiting audibletrial.com slash sober stories. That's audibletrial.com slash sober stories. As a person who spills her guts about her drinking problem on the internet, the number one question I get asked on a daily basis is what my favorite NA rec is. Listen, I've been sober for five years and I've tried them all. I can earnestly tell you that Ritual Zero Proof is my tried and true non-alcoholic spirit brand. One I regularly restock. The one making my recycling bin glike around again, just like the bad old days, except this time I don't have hangovers. The one that even my normie friends tell me is pretty fantastic. You're gonna wanna go ahead and order you some other tequila alternative, mixing it with some lime and tahini, and sip the summer away without the splitting headache and regret. It has a ginger base, which gives it a nice bite that you get from like a spicy margarita. Use the code RZPSTORIES for 20% off your order at RitualZeroProof.com. Cheers, y'all. I'll say this. I'll say that there was a time during my addiction where I'm just like, the jig is up. I'm going through this and I need help. I need serious, serious help. Because also growing up, like, you know, I grew up, my parents are like Nigerian, you know, they're Muslim. Um, My parents are, you know, very devout Muslims, grew up really religious. I'm not religious anymore. I'm not into organized religion. Mm Um, that's one of the things I got from my recovery. And I said there's nothing wrong with organized religion. I'm not saying that. But yeah, when you, I guess when you, I don't say when you wake up, but when you, I think you learn about yourself. Yeah. You learn about totally. yourself. You get to know. Yeah. Yeah. You get to know what's right for you and what's yeah. not in sobriety. Yeah. So, you know, I do certain things. Like I still do Ramadan, but I'm not as religious as I was before my addiction. I'm not as religious anymore. Okay. So. I say to I say that to say that there was a time where I was like, okay, the jig is up. I need help. I am mm. struggling. And even my parents, being two people who have worked with people who need help, could not fathom or understand. I don't want to put mm. thoughts or words in their heads because they've never really come out and told me. But besides financial help, were not able to give me the help and support I need. Yeah. Again, it's just this idea of like, if I am not acting perfect or being quote unquote perfect or doing everything right, even now that you guys know that this is a facade, that I am struggling, mm. 
that's not even enough. <laughs> that like you know, it doesn't matter. And again, I don't want to put feelings and words into their heads. I feel like people deal with trauma and I think addiction is traumatic for everyone involved. They deal with it differently. Yes. But the idea that again, me letting you know, hey, I'm not good. I'm not perfect. I'm actually struggling. I've actually, you know, I've lost these amount of jobs. I've you know, I can't afford my rent. I can't do this and that. And then still pretending mm. I'm good and perfect. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, don't, I feel like I'm rambling and I, I totally even forgot the question, but just your comment just now <laughs> made me think about that. It's, it's, it's something. That's all I'll say. It's, it's something. Well, I think, it, I, yeah. And I think, I, I think one of the things that I experienced is I never fit in a box that was neat and tidy that people could understand because ostensibly, like I come from a shit ton of privilege and I have a mental health degree and I'm a suburban mom. And like, there's so many things that just didn't fit into the box of addiction and didn't fit into the box of problem. And and so in a lot of ways, I fell through the cracks a lot and got to a place where I was completely missed by doctors, by mental health professionals, by like all of this, because I just didn't fit in the box. And what I hear when you're you're talking about this is like the way you grew up and the cultures you grew up within and your family of origin, you as Katie didn't fit in what they saw as, as addiction. And again, we're not going to speak for your parents because they're not here. But I think to bring it all home, that all goes back to the value and the necessity of having things like Sober Black Girls Club, where you like, you've created a new box. You've created a whole new box for people to see themselves in and to fit into and to be recognized and have a mirror held up to them and say like, hey, this is what I went through. Maybe this is what you're going through look, I have done all these big changes. This is what's available for you as well. So when you tell your story, when you connect with people in Sober Black Girls Club, what do you hear from the people that are in the community? What are you hearing from them about their experiences and what they're struggling with and what's important to them? Yeah. And before I go to that, I feel like you just said something really important that I do want to address. So it's like also how I was so shocked that I found myself into addiction but when you yeah. do see, and again, it's just the denial of what people, especially children, can truly handle. And it's denial yeah. of what some cultural norms cause. Because mm-hmm. the, truth, the truth of the matter is I was shocked that I ended up addiction. But when you look at my past experiences, I don't think any health professional would ever be shocked that mm-hmm. I ended up in addiction. I think that like you could only cope with perfectionism and mm-hmm. And striving so well in school and getting good grades for so long. But when you sit down and you yep. look at my friends, it's like, that's yeah. trauma. Mm-hmm. And and for our community, for my community, a lot of like Black folks, I know we think that like, well, this happens to everyone and everyone is okay. But really, in, in, mm. all, in all respect, you're not okay. You know, you think you're yeah. okay. You're only okay until something happens and it makes you realize you're not okay. A lot of times what we do is that we overwork to not think about the things that have that make us not okay mm. and i think that just brings me forward to the question you just asked it's about talking about our experiences that have happened outside of the home inside of home the things that we are ashamed of the things that we are mm. deeply sad about and i think your first thoughts of like talking about it and and getting rid of the shame and, and the guilt mm. getting rid of not wanting to be looked down upon or not wanting to have people pity you and, and feel bad for you and feel sorry for you. I know a lot of times like in our meetings, there's always, you know, 
this is the first time I've shared this and that's a breakthrough. You deserve to have your, your experiences told. You deserve to feel safe. You deserve to know that you're not going to be judged and then another thing is that and again like all of our meetings are confidential so it's not i'm not going into any personal stories or anything of that nature i think what i feel what i've experienced is similar to many of our members experience the idea of you know i always say well when people were like you know addiction runs in the family i'm like well no one in my family was addicted to anything Mm -hmm. and even yeah and even though i know that to be i know that to be true of today I feel like in our community, a lot of people do suffer with substance abuse and addiction. However, mm-hmm. because it doesn't look like years of family history going to addiction, going to rehab, it doesn't look like houselessness, mm-hmm. regional houselessness. We yep. say there's like no addiction in the family, and it's like let's be real mm. how, how are our families handling capitalism and, and patriarchy and, mm. and 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 all those those all those isms how are our families handling it and from from my lens from my experience we're handling it with self-harm in one way or another yeah and or violence so mm. even if it's not addiction to alcohol or it's addiction to something else is it it's hoarding I've I've realized that that's something in my family that I haven't realized until I got into recovery and looking at how people Mm -hmm. live. Coping again. Coping, yes. It's it's a coping, yeah. Yes. So in our meetings, it's again, just talking about the practices. We're thinking that we're the only ones. And then we look look Mm -hmm. and we're like, wait, no, it didn't stop with us. We're looking at that. Like, this is where it started with, but you know what? We're going to, we're going to change it. We're going to be the beginning of the change. Mm. That, yeah, that idea just like rocked me a little bit. I think that that is really, it's just like this idea of like, again, I I go back to like the centering of whiteness, like that we think, oh, addiction didn't run in my family because nobody went to rehab. Nobody, you know, nobody even went to AA, which was always very white centered. It's like we coped in other ways and it is still the same addiction and it is still the same illness. What is it? Like, I I, I don't, I'm trying to wrap my head around how I, I reconciled that with my understanding of everything. So when you had this revelation, when you had this understanding, like, okay, it wasn't alcohol necessarily, or it wasn't quote unquote alcohol addiction. It was other things. Like, does your family talk about that? Do y'all have conversations or is it like, you've got these ideas in your head and no. Yeah, no, we don't talk about it. I think for me, we don't talk about it. So I do talk to my, people always say, do you talk to your family? I do talk to them, but I had to realize that I'm old enough to go my own way and mm-hmm. to do my own thing. And I'm old enough yeah. to know that we're all doing the best we can in life. And mm. though I might have empathy and though I might have understanding with certain people in my family, um, it doesn't mean that I have to, like I'm old enough. At some point you can't keep on just blaming people for your circumstances, right? And well, I'll say this, anyone can do what you want. For me, I realized I can't keep on blaming, yeah. you know, my family members, my circumstances. I realized that it wasn't necessarily doing anything for me because my life was still like my life was still a life that I wasn't happy living. Meanwhile, like they looked fine, whether they're fine or not. Like you know what I mean. I was the one who was suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to be. I had to accept that. You know, even though I didn't necessarily create the foundation of the of what my world looks like right now, it is unfortunately my response. And I say unfortunately because it's a lot of work. Totally. But it's, it's it is my job to to fix it, right? To mm-hmm. to. to 
to live better, to be better, to feel better, to improve the way I see myself and my community and people around me. So that entails of like, yeah, you know, my family knows when I'm around them, I talk about the things that are on my mind. You know, my mom always says, oh my gosh, you always like to talk about feelings. Yeah, <laughs> I knew. We do, mom. Yeah, they just, you know, when I'm around them, they know that. But I've also just forged my own path of the way I want to live, the way I want to be able to talk to people, the way I want to treat people, the way I want to be treated. I'll give like a prime example of like children. I just realized like growing up, children are not necessarily, and even in the home and out the side of the home, even going to school, like just children are just not given the respect that they deserve mm-hmm. and just the way children are talked about as if they're property children are people <laughs> like i like mm-hmm. it's just it's mind-blowing the way we treat kids it yeah, really is totally. and as i'm older and i see the people who i've grown up with kind of doing similar things that we have acknowledged have harmed us mm-hmm. I'm like, i don't want to be around this you know what i mean i don't mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I don't want to be around this. I I want to tell, you know, a little kid, listen, you can eat first. It's not a big deal. You don't have to call me A, mm-hmm. B, and C. You can call me by my name. But I don't mm-hmm. need all these dynamics of power. I don't need to practice this. Mm-hmm. Because this does not come from love. And it really doesn't come from respect either. It really is just a power dynamic um, that a yeah. lot of cultures, unfortunately, some parts of my culture, and I don't need it. I don't need you to call me that. While I can't change what they're doing, I can't tell a person my age what to do. I can't tell an elder. I know what I want. I can say well, how I want to be treated, and I can move away. I can just be like, hey, I'll be, you know, I'll come around during holidays, birthdays, but I can do my own thing, and I can do yeah. different practices for my own family, mm-hmm. chosen family. That's where I'm at. Yeah, right now absolutely. Well, and 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 I appreciate what you're saying about there's only so much we can do for the past. There's only so much that can be righted or changed or corrected about the past. And it's how we move forward and what legacy we create moving forward with the information we have is is really what I hear from you. And I think that that, again, is just like the work you do in the sober space is the legacy. This is creating a different way for people to be able to show up and to be able to be a whole person without all of the baggage and without all of the quote unquote outside issues, like letting outside issues come in and actually being a part of who we are as a whole person. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, for sure. Okay. This has been so wonderful and and I am so curious what you're working on, but I won't ask you because I know you're probably keeping it under wraps, but you're going to give us a sneak peek. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, for sure. I don't mind. I don't mind sharing. So right now I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma and there is no, so I'm I'm a New Yorker. I'm from New York. Definitely been (laughs) feeling the need to like get away. I've been feeling since honestly, since again, just feeling the need to feel an image. So, So even before law school, I'm like, I need, I want to move. I wanted to move to Texas, hmm. but just as trying to conform to this image of being this New York lawyer, even though knowing that like New York, hmm. I haven't been happy in New York for so long. Trauma with the whole nine eleven. Hmm. It was it's just a lot, just a lot of a lot of history and trauma from New York that I don't even feel like people acknowledge or talk about anymore, which is extremely yeah. weird. But anyways, let me not drag that out. <laughs> so um, I got the opportunity to come to Tulsa. So after actually last year, there was like a, a shooting and like the, the a train. Hmm. That I take to work, and I was done. I was like, I'm leaving. Got an opportunity to come to Tulsa, Oklahoma, through a remote program. So I've been here for some time. It's pretty cool. While I'm here, 
I, I do like it. You know, it's pretty, pretty country. <laughs> it's different from New York. Oh, it's Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah. I'm liking like this, the slow pace. I am liking like the people. I'm liking how they're like integrating. Like, a lot of people are here from the program. So there's a lot of people from LA and other New Yorkers. So I'm liking this new mixing pot that like Tulsa is becoming. So, but while I've, since I've been here, I've realized that there's not... There's just no silver space. I don't mind going mm-hmm. out. I do go a lot on the weekends with my friends. I have fun. I'm I'm always gonna have fun. It doesn't matter if other people are drinking or not. So what I'm working on right now is, you know, I've recently pitched a Tulsa Sober, Tulsa Dry Bar at a pitch competition. Actually won first place. Cool. Yeah, thank you. So right now we are just doing like experimental phase of hosting mm-hmm. a lot of pop-ups just so we can get community. And then hopefully in the next year or two we can actually get like a physical space in Tulsa. Yes. And when I talked about collecting stones earlier, I was like, wait, do I really want to run a bar? <laughs> the answer is no. I think what, what I'm looking for now is just community, like something to do, have yeah. something to do on the weekends that is, that's fun and with community. And I realized, well, I can, I can just do pop-ups right now, right? And I can wait mm. until I get a, a partner, a business partner who could come along and they can, if they want to, you know, to do the whole bar scene. But again, even yeah. just because you know, Tulsa doesn't have a sober bar, and this is going to be the first sober bar. And even though, just because this is going to be a big deal, it doesn't mean that I have to. Every idea, I'm always going to have good ideas. It doesn't mm. mean every single idea that I come up with that I have to go full pledged yes. into. I can literally work with other people to create, to, to bring my ideas to life, especially when they're mm-hmm. for the greater good. Like nothing I do, honestly, yeah. I didn't know SBGC was going to become SBGC. I didn't come, you know, I didn't come to Tulsa saying I'm going to create a sober dry bar. You know, I just literally, how things come to me is when I see that there's a lack. I'm like, what are we doing here? Like, why is there not, like, this is a state where a lot of people behind bars are behind bars because of substance related yeah. projects. Why are there no sober alternatives in one of the main cities? Makes no sense. Mm. Let's change that. I'm coming into realization, especially having to do with like perfectionism and capitalism and always feel like you want to be number Oof. one. You want to be, you want to yep. all the credit. I don't need the credit. I don't need to do this for myself. I can mm. work with someone to bring it, to bring it into fruition. That's something I'm working on. And again, also oh. just realizing like my life is more about is more than just about which I know some people are gonna be like, uh, but it's true. My life is my life revolves around more than just sobriety and recovery. Like, there's yeah. more to me. Totally. Right. So when I'm putting down my ego, when I'm looking at like, am I collecting stones? Mm. What the hell am I doing? Mm. You know, what what, what mm. am I doing? Um and when yeah. I when I check myself, it's like, okay. This is what I'm this is what I'm going to be doing and this is what I'm going to leave for someone else to pick up and do. Mm, yeah. Are we collecting infinity stones or is this actually what we want to do? That I think I'm gonna like hold on to that one for a while because I think I'm also a, an infinity stone collector. <laughs> yeah. Um we're, we're ideal people. What can we say? I have ideas and it's like, oh, but this would be so great. But maybe I don't have to be the one to steward it. It makes me also think of um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, where she talks about ideas and how not every idea is meant to come to fruition and that there is discernment in deciding which ones are for and for us. And I also really resonate with this idea of 
being more than just a sober person at this point. Like it gets to be beyond sobriety eventually. There's there's space for so much more once we are past the initial act of addiction. Yeah, for sure. And I know like, again, I know uh, that's the one thing, another like kind of drew me away from like the 12 steps is just this idea that like, I'm sorry. It's just more to me. It's forever. If it works for you, great. I love it. Like it. But I just feel like one of the things about coming into your recovery and being honest with yourself is really just doing what feels good for you. And what feels Mm. good for me is not going to feel good for everyone. And I know people be like, well, life is not all about feeling good. Well, I think sometimes it is. Sometimes things, some things Mm -hmm. are about feeling good because especially Mm -hmm. life nowadays, uh, you know, you check the news, check the newspaper, everything is just so miserable. And we do have to find the, the, little joys of like of, of goodness mm-hmm. that we can hold on to and I think that like it, I don't think it's always going to be in the rooms I don't think it's always going to be on Instagram yeah. I don't think it's in and when I mean rooms I mean SPGC too I don't think it's always you know yeah. I can't wait until we can start holding meetings every day of the week but I wouldn't want to hold meetings every hour of the day I just feel like there's more to life right. I always encourage our members go bird watching go do something like go <laughs> bird watching well, go swimming. Well, I'll swimming is something I want to learn how to do. Oh, yeah. You know how to swim? Yeah. I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't even be able to get to the other end of the pool. I would I would die of exhaustion and probably drown. So maybe I should learn how to swim too. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to learn how to swim. But yeah. Like so okay. Many- you and me. We're going to learn how to swim. <laughs> yeah. There's so many things that you don't know how to like, Go learn something. If not, learn yeah. the rest. But yeah. Um, there's just – well and. I had this conversation with somebody this morning. She was like, man, sometimes I go to a meeting, a different kind of meeting. I think I don't remember which one she was talking about. She gets like, I go to a meeting and there are people that are like, they, they're five years in and they have to go to three meetings a day. And I just don't want that. And I'm like, it can, it can be like that if that feels fulfilling to you, but it doesn't have to be like that. Like you can eventually get space from it and you can eventually get more beyond outside. Like it gets to be really expansive and it doesn't have to be one right way. And if it works for you to go to three meetings a day, five years in, and that feels good and supportive and the 12 step model feels good and supportive, then great. But if that doesn't feel like something that lights you up and you want to do something else, like there are other ways to do this that can look different depending on what feels good and right for you. There's so much goodness here and I love the work you do and I love the focus on joy and pleasure and things that feel good and and that it can just feel good. I could sit here and talk forever, but I know you've got meetings to get to and it's been a long day. So I want to ask you the final question that I ask every person on the podcast. And that is, if your story were to be made into a book, what would it be titled and why? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) This is actually pretty funny. I think I would title my name. I I think I would title the book Khadijah. And why is because it hit me the other day that all my life I've been going by nicknames. So Kiki, Khadijah, Katie, and I've spelled Katie so many (laughs) <laughs> like the various mm. ways of how to spell it. And I realized, I will say that Katie was like my birth name. A lot of like Nigerian Muslim girls are who are named Khadijah, who have that name Khadijah, which is an Arabic name. Our nicknames are Katie, but mm-hmm. I have, you know, changed it to be more Americanized, mm-hmm. spelled it like KD sometimes, like with the two letters K and a D, yep. or like KT, whatever. And it hit me the other day that, like, every time I would change either the spelling of KD or change my nickname and be like, 
Kwame Kiki or Kwame K- or mm-hmm. Key or Deja, whatever. It was because I was literally trying to fit this persona of who I wanted yeah. to be, of like this new person who I yeah. wanted to be. I was thinking the other day how like it is to- like I am everything and everyone that I've always imagined myself to be, imagined myself to be. Like I am so multifaceted. I am, you can speak to me in the morning. I could be a different person in the afternoon. And that is totally okay. But I do not have mm-hmm. to fit into any box. And every person or every personality or every characteristic or every persona or everything about me rightfully belongs under the name Khadija. Like I, mm. you know, I used to think mm. it was a little too ghetto or a little too this or whatever I used to think about my, my first name, but it's totally fine. And mm. um, I'm literally Khadija, you know, I'm Khadija. You can call yeah. me Katie, but I'm Khadija too. All right. Khadija. It's like returning home. Yes. Returning home. I love it. This has been wonderful. Khadija. I'm going to call you Khadija now, (laughs) if that's okay. (laughs) This has been wonderful. And I know folks are going to want to connect with you. So how can they find you? How can they find your work? Where do you live on the internet? Yeah, I think so. All my personal socials are Katie forever. So Twitter, um, Instagram, Katie forever. And then you can also find me to the Blackhouse Club. So also the Blackhouse Club on all socials as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Thank you so much for your time and for your candor. And I will put all of this in the show notes so folks can go find you and Zipper Black Girls Club and see all of the good work that y'all are doing. But I really appreciate your time and your story. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Khadija Olawatoyan. I'm curious if you've caught yourself collecting infinity stones like I have. Um, (laughs) I'm going to go take that one to my therapist because I think I have a lot to figure out in that space. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories and change more lives one killer review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you share with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your biggest takeaways. And hey, you never know and we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Callie Williams and Zach Kiniston on editing. They also have their very own podcast, Switchcraft, Battling a Bulky Backlog, where they play over 180 Nintendo Switch titles. Check them out. Danielle and Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we're building. Until next week, my friends. Mm-hmm.